Our passage today comes from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Hello, everyone. My name is David Kim, and I'm one of the pastors in Renewal Mainline, and I have the privilege today of preaching uh, Psalm 34 uh, as we wrap up our series on Psalm. For the past few weeks, we've been going over various places in Psalms, and we've been talking about how to deal with our emotions. And we talked about how God's love satisfies us in a world that just cannot satisfy us. And we talked about the appropriate places of grief, as well as um, the fact that our help comes from God. And last week, Pastor Bill preached to us how we can live optimistically in this broken world and how we must take part in that praise, recognize that we can praise God and to actually take part in it. In today's passage, Psalm 34, we're taking one step further from that. Um, what does it look like to live in that kind of type of praise worthy, praising life, a life of worship, what does that look like? And what does it look like to have hope and trust in God as we do so? Today's psalmist tells us that we worship God in those ways, in three ways actually. Uh, I named it refuge, reference, uh, reverence, and righteousness. Re refuge, reverence, and righteousness. That's how, that's how we worship God. But before we proceed further, let us pray and ask the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for giving us psalms so that we could have words to express our emotions and right places to go to as we go through hardships in life. God, we ask that you would provide us with wisdom 
and guidance as we go through Psalm 34 today, and as we go along with our lives, would you walk with us with your guidance? Give us wisdom. Give us, give us your wisdom, Lord, so that we could ready our hearts to follow you and truly see hope in you and trust in you and therefore worship you in our lives. Would you ready our hearts to hear your voice in the midst of all this? And we thank you for everything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the psalmist of today's passage is Psalm 34. Uh, the psalmist is King David. And as the description in the beginning of the passage explains, this is the psalm that David wrote when he had a near-death experience um, with this king of Gath. If you don't know the story too well, uh, it comes from 1 Samuel 21, where the setting of the story is that David has just ran away from Saul because Saul is always trying to kill him. And he's always in that thread because Saul is afraid that David will take over his throne. So David had to flee, flee somewhere. He has to find a safe haven. He had to find somewhere safe. And he thought Gath was a safe place. He thought that was far enough away from Saul and from danger and that he could work without fearing death for one day, at least. And back home, he had to live with that threat every day. Death was in every corner, sometimes literally. So he flees to Gath, and where he encounters the king there, Akish. And there, his servants actually recognize him. And that's the devastating part that David wasn't looking forward to. People recognize him. And the servants start murmuring and say, isn't this the guy that Saul is talking about all the time? Isn't this the guy that Israelites are singing for? That Saul killed this many, but David's better? Isn't this the guy that Israelites are trying to make him the new king? What is he doing here? What is he doing in our town? Is he trying to take over our town? Bring him in. Let's take a look at this guy. So the king actually brings him in. And David hears this murmur, hears this information. It's not a nice invitation. He's actually brought into that threat, and he knows what's going on. He knows that he could die right here. He knows that he's walked into a place that is not safe at all. And then he's terrified. He really thought this was a safe place, and he was wrong. And what does he do in that moment when he could just die right there, when he realizes that everything is lost? This is what he does. He pretends to be insane. That's what he does right there. He is actually successful in fooling them. Uh, this is the description of what happened in uh, 1 Samuel 21. He made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. He actually puts his effort, tries everything he can to actually live out that craziness and convinces and successfully convinces everyone in the court. So the king says, why did you guys bring this crazy guy here? Get him out of my sight. I don't have to worry about this guy. And that's where David's writing this Psalm 34, when he's, he has just successfully fled from that danger. Today's passage, Psalm is writing with good description of what he felt in that incident and how he's responding to it. And on one hand, I obviously can't exactly imagine how he would have felt because I wasn't in that position of a near-death experience and only by getting away from my lowliest attempt, a lowliest humiliation. But at the, uh, on the other hand, um, we do face troubles all the time, a devastating trouble all the time. Uh, 
And in those moments, how would, how would we feel? If I just think about what David would have felt, if it were me, I just spent some time thinking about how that would have uh, impacted me in that near-death experience and that humiliation with that insanity. I think I would be depressed. I think I would be brought down pretty low. One of the lowest points of my life, probably. And life as it is for David has always been difficult, always with that threats of death. And just at the moment where he thought he was safe, he almost died. And I think if I were me, I would have started to question things. Is there another day for me? Can I live another day? Is there any sense of protection that is left in my life? And in those moments, just think about how we would respond. But do you know how King David responds? His response actually catches me off guard quite abruptly. He responds with, worship. After this, he breaks out in praise and he worships God. How? How can he break out with praise in such place, of lowliest place, of such depression? He does it by three ways. He does it by taking refuge in God and he reveres God. He only, he's only enabled to do so by the righteousness of God. So let's go through those points. So David says in Psalm 34 verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's the first thing he says after this. First thing, I will bless the Lord. I will worship him. I will praise you, Lord. And he doesn't stop here. He says, my soul makes us boast in the Lord. And he invites the readers, join me in this worship. I'm not just boasting to you guys. I'm actually boasting to the world. Join me in this praise, in this worship. How is he doing this? In this near-death experience, only being saved by this humiliation, how can he praise God? Because he rightly recognizes God as the source of the protection. Verse 8 says, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He doesn't say it was by his own wit. He doesn't say it was because he was smart on that spot to think that acting that he was able to get away from that danger. He fully credits God for saving that he could praise this way because he takes refuge in God. His safety is in God. So what is taking refuge? Taking refuge. A de dictionary definition says, a refuge is a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. It is where you find your peace and protection. And that is quite accurate of what this passage is telling us. Taking refuge in God. David says in verse 8, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He's saying that he is in a place where he can call a refuge, a shelter, that he feels safe. He is protected. What gives him those ideas? Is it, is it an absence of danger or a threat of death? It's clearly not because he just got out of that threat, quite clearly. So it's not that. If, if, if that's not the case, what is making him call that a refuge of that state? It is because his true refuge is not locational. It's relational. It's not where he is in terms of that sense of protection, that provision of place, but it's actually who he is with. It's the fact that he's with God Almighty and the fact that he, God is with him, that is his refuge. 
Uh, an illustration of that could actually be a, some reflection of the truth in that is where my children actually feel safe uh, at my home. I always complain to them that they complain about being scared at night because I was a, a child of uh, three siblings and I was the only one that, that slept by myself and I was always scared at night. And my kids, uh, six and eight year old uh, siblings, they do still share a, bed, uh, share a room with different beds and I'm telling them, why are you scared? And they always come and say, Daddy, I'm scared. And the surefire solution is me being there. Nothing else changes, the light's still off, it always they say the light's scary, the darkness is scary, something is scary, something scares them, but the moment I actually stay with them, they're safe. It's, it's not really that, low. it's really w the fact that I'm there with him or not. And clearly, I'm not a good representation of God Almighty, and yet it does reflect a truth that is infinitely better, which is God's presence with you. Our Father in heaven, good, good God, powerful God, residing with us. That's refuge to David. And um, through verse 4 and 6, he actually says God delivers him from all things. God provides all solutions. He removes all of his shame. He removes his fears. God saves him from all his troubles. He's actually listing all the things that he has gone through in that moment. And he's saying God removes those things while those things still happened. He's not neglecting the existence of those troubles. He says, yeah, they exist. And later he's going to say, the life in, in this world will, it will be filled with adversities. But nevertheless, he provides a way out. He delivers us. He protects us. How? How is he saying that David's, how is David saying God is protecting in this mist? Because he rightly credits where everything, every good thing is coming from. Everything that satisfies him, everything that he needs. He's saying that, that those things come from God. Even in that moment when he was able to act that way, convincingly, with method acting, drooling, and all those wits, all that wisdom, he's saying that's God. And it was also God who convinced Abimelech, the king, that I was crazy. That was God. I was able to get away. Do we do that? Do we take that refuge? Do we, do we actively take refuge in God and God alone? Do we credit God as the one who provides? Or in actuality, do we look somewhere else for our refuge? Do we take refuge in something else? Let's keep that uh, question lingering in our minds as uh, we'll come back to this later. So King David shows us that our worship starts with rightly allocating where the goodness comes from. The help comes from God. That's the first step of worshiping God in refuge in Him. Allocating where the goodness comes from. And then he actively and constantly meditates on that fact. Not only by himself. He doesn't just do it personally with him and God. He makes it quite public. He shares it with others and say, hear this. Worship and taking refuge in God doesn't happen alone only. It happens corporately. He says that he will continually praise God. And in verse 2, he says he will, his listeners will be glad. They will hear this and they will be glad. They will be happy for him. They will be happy for God. He proceeds in such invitation. In verse 8, he says, 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It is important for us to not only retain the knowledge of God, the goodness of God, who he is and what he's done, to informational, informatively have it, but actually spend some time experiencing that goodness, to live it out in our life in a personal level, as David puts it, to come and taste that the Lord is good. This means Yelp reviews aren't enough for us for good meals. We need to taste it to start praising it. Can't say someone else loved it, therefore it doesn't make us break into praise. We need to experience it. So what does taking refuge in God taste like? What is God's goodness? What does it taste like? He says in verse 9, an example of God's goodness is contentment. He says it's contentment. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. They lack no good thing. Double negative. They have every good thing. They lack no good thing. God is gracious to provide with his goodness in every corner of our lives. That's, that contentment is one thing I actually have the privilege to sometimes, occasionally experience, especially these days, to lack nothing, to feel like there is nothing that's lacking. Um, as I mentioned, I have two children, an eight-year-old daughter and a son turning six years old, and I have the blessing of being stuck with them 24-7 thanks to COVID-19. And having my kids around, especially during this time, is actually nowhere close to contentment, lacking nothing. It's actually the opposite. We lack something all the time. And I don't blame them. They're, they need something, but they say, Daddy, could you do this? Appa, could you? I need this, that. Could you do this? Um, it's really not, each, each request is not bad. <laughs> it's doable. It's the, it's the everlasting presence of that demand. That, that, that there's always something lacking that's, that's, that's terrible uh, in my emotion. Not for them. They're fine. <laughs> but I have a hard time with that. It drives me uh, not too crazy, but somewhere. Um, I'm always thinking, when will they start um, cleaning up themselves in the rear? And, but there are moments, rare moments, where there's a sound of peace. Did you guys know that this peace has sound? You know what it sounds like? Nothing. The sound of peace. There are times where, you, where I hear it, and immediately I fell in peace. I was like, this is beautiful. And then on the other hand, I'm saying, what's going on? What are they doing? Are they okay? So I kind of quietly try to find them. And then I open the door of their room. And then the more I approach them, the more this beautiful sound of giggling and talking to each other this beautiful sound starts, you know, filling up the room. So I slowly open the door, and there's sunlight coming down. And then they're on the Lego table, kindly. They're the kindest people on earth at that moment to each other, giving this and that, doing this and that. Just content. There's nothing that they need from me. And that's beautiful. One of the most beautiful things these days, at least. So I try to close the door really quietly. Because if they catch me, they're like, oh, you're there. I forgot about you. Um, 
So have you ever experienced contentment? Or have you ever experienced God's goodness in any other way? True goodness, have you tasted it? And have you rightly allocated, that's the next part, that's very important, have you rightly allocated that source of goodness to God? Have you broken out at that moment and praised God and say, this is good. Lord, this tastes good. God, praise you. I would just spend some time thinking about those things. What, what were some good things that happened? Could it be uh, the Grand Canyon that you've seen for the first time with your eyes and realize that there's, you, you realize that there's something that your eyes can see that way, that grandness? Or was it a beautiful movie that you finished? Um, was the first time that you ate something that you've never tasted before? Was it uh, the perfect time with your beloved one? What is it? What's the really good time that told you this is good? And let me remind you from James 1.17. God tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. God gives us that. Those good things, such as contentment or any other thing, comes from God. And David wants us to taste it and rightly recognize it as God. This is what it tastes like to be in this refuge. That's what David's telling us. That protection, those resources, circumstances, all kinds of things that we do need in life and how God provides us such. And we worship in refuge in God as we actively meditate upon those things and even verbally recognizing it to say that this is good, Lord. This is good. Guys, isn't this good? And prayer and thanksgiving. But not too often, right? Not too often. Instead, maybe a little more frequently, there is the opposite, where we do experience something lacking, something not working out, something that we still need, some good thing that's absent that we say, oh, only if that's there. So what's this discrepancy here? David's explaining uh, a worship in the Lord and refuge in God and feeling content, that goodness, tasting it, but not too often. Why is that? That might be because of the second point, the second component that is very important to worshiping God, which is we worship, in, we worship God in reverence of God. We worship God, the psalmist tells us, in the fear of the Lord. He actually uses that word, fear. I was the one who made it R, but he says fear, fear of the Lord. It, verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. That should sound weird. At least to me it was. Especially when I just read from him, he said, God removes all my fears. And then he says, so fear the Lord. What's going on? What is that discrepancy? This may easily come to us as a contradictory concept at our first glance. But if we take a look at it deeper, and just meditate on it. The psalmist is actually getting at the deep bottom of our hearts of what we call fear. What does fear look like? What is fear coming from? Where is it coming from? What does it entail? So let me clarify the, ver the word used in verse 4 for fear that David says God removes. It's a different word from the reverence that we're talking about. It's the fear. It's the kind of fear of all the other things, just being terrified, being scared, and being concerned. You don't, you don't like it, obviously. Um, but the fear of the Lord is reverence. It's the fear and awe. 
It's the deep respect for God with admiration, with the right awareness of the distance that exists between Him and, and us. His eternal holiness and His goodness versus our sinfulness and our limitation, our imperfection. And that gap makes us scared. That is scary. And it makes us fearful of that existence. But we don't shy away from it. That fear of the Lord actually allows us to worship. It's a worshipful fear. But this actually doesn't, doesn't mean that verse 4 fear versus the reverence fear is a completely different thing. It does carry a component of fear nevertheless. We are still fearing the Lord. Why? What am, I, what am I saying here? I'm saying reverence isn't not fear. In other words, reverence has that component of fearing God. And why is that important? For David to say, fear the Lord. Why do we fear the Lord? Because fear reveals what we worship. Fear is a good indicator of what we worship. Uh, Joseph Bradshaw explains it this way. Let me read his quote. <clears throat> Think about it. If you had a fear of spiders and there was a spider in the room, I guarantee you won't be thinking of anything else other than where is that spider and what is it doing? You won't be thinking of how fat you are, how much money you don't have, what's for lunch, where and what will I be doing next year. Your only concern is that spider. That's fear. Fear is our attention, he says. Fear is our focus. What we fear is what we are subject to. It defines our master. I'm not calling people out that has arachnophobia, obviously. They don't worship spiders. But that does still reveal something. Fear reveals our attention, our focus. This is why the psalmist demands us the fear of God. He doesn't say, get rid of your fear. He says, don't fear anything else, but fear the one that needs to be feared, that needs to be focused, that needs to be worshipped. Fear the Lord, because He is the one that you should care about, that you should think about, that you should love. That's why Proverbs 9 reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is why the psalmist says the fear of the Lord will bring contentment because our focus is fixed on God's perspective, what He desires, what He thinks is good and bad. He defines who we are. He defines what other things are. He becomes our definition. Our object of worship defines who we are. That's why we need to fear God. So the question that's very important is, do you fear God? Or is there something that you do fear more than God? Practically. Practically. Taking refuge in God was the first point of worship, where we identify the place of worship. And fearing God was the second point where we were able to identify the focus, the object of worship. But when we start to reflect on how well we do in these points, how is it? How successful are we? How successful am I? I had the privilege of reflecting on Psalm 34 
probably a little more than you guys last week. Um, and when I asked that question, um, I didn't like what came out. I didn't like what, what was revealed. When I asked myself, do I fear God? Do I revere God? Do I take refuge in God when I am in need, when I need something, when I'm lacking something? Do I take refuge in God? And I realized it was easy to answer, not really, too often. They're hard. They were, it was easy to come up with things that I actually do grasp. With confession, I still am confident that if someone asks me that question, do you fear God? Do you take refuge in Him? I will emphatically say, yes, of course I do. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. He is where I take my refuge. I find my peace. But in reality, when hardships hit me, where do I turn to? It was quite often not God, something else. Many times it was entertainment. Sometimes it was recognition of people. Sometimes it's just sheer happiness. Many things replaced my worship. I didn't take refuge in God. How do you guys do in the question? What do you worship? Where do you take refuge? What do you fear? When you think about things that are being provided right now, if when you're not catching cold or worse at this moment, where are you thanking? Are you praising God because He's providing such provision, such safe haven from His provision? Or are we actually happy in how much we could provide in the shelter, the physical shelter, the, the Purell that we have, or a good hygiene system that we actually are exposed to? Or what are we praising here? When you have a steady income, where do you go to to worship? Do you go to God and say, God, thank you for providing me the daily bread. Thank you for answering my prayer when I prayed, give us this day our daily bread. Or do I actually go and smile while looking at my resume and say, that's a good resume. I did some good work there. When I write a good essay and get an A, or when I get 4.0 GPA this past semester, what do I say? God, kudos for making this work in me. You did well in making me do this amazing work, God. Praise God. Is that something? Um, maybe I'm speaking too much of myself. What is it that is something else that you fear much more, that you take refuge in? And when we realize that these things aren't actually that easy to succeed in doing David actually provides us the third component of worship. He says, of course, it's hard to take refuge in him and fear him because you're supposed to be enabled by God's righteousness. Psalm 34 tells us that third point. It is by God's righteousness we are able to worship in that pursuit of righteousness. David says in verse 11, he will teach us. He says, I will teach you what a person that truly fears the Lord looks like. He says, when you have your focus and attention to God as the object of worship, when that becomes your life, verse 12 to 14 start to describe your life. Let me read that for us. Verse 13, you keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And because you have the fear of the Lord, you turn away from evil and do good. You don't stop at that. 
You don't stop at your own obedience of justice, but you proceed and seek peace and you pursue it. In other words, this becomes who you are. You become a righteous person. When you fear the Lord, when you take refuge in the Lord, you become a righteous person. The flip side, that's what a righteous person does. Righteous person is the one who worships God, who takes accurately, who takes refuge in God, who fears the Lord, Lord only. Righteous person. See, verse 15, he says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. Verse 16 and 17, the psalmist tells us that God will see justice through, and he brings some uh, grievous descriptions of, of what will fall to the wicked. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. He's saying that all these things that we just heard about, what we were supposed to be doing, and all these benefits that are given to the, the refuge, the shelter, the right attitude, the fear, all these things are for righteous people. This is for righteous people. And let me be pretty emphatic here. Uh, despite the fact that our generation does shy away from righteousness, God's holiness. But the Bible never shies away from seeking righteousness. In fact, it's pretty loud it's throughout the whole Bible, actually. It's demanded from us. Proverbs 21 tells us that we must pursue righteousness. Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 1 Timothy 6, 11, it also speaks of the same pursuit of such righteousness. Countless places of the Bible demand us just outright the word and the concept of righteousness, or it implies you need to be righteous. That is what is good. Why is the Bible doing that? In fact, uh, why is it so hard to hear that? Because we fail at that. Because we because we fail at being righteous. And it's frowned upon to think about the pursuit of righteousness if you're thinking about achieving it on your own. Because throughout the history, people have tried it, tried to pursue such perfection, righteousness. And just, there's 0% of success rate. No one is righteous, not even one. That's God's word. And the psalmist is saying that here, um, but, and then are we going to say, so is he just misinformed? Is he just young or something? Does he not know things? But he's actually someone that knows best of what it means to be unrighteous, what it, what it means to fail in being a righteous person in the most content stage of his life. When now that the fact that the actual dangers outside, those are gone and he's in a safe palace and everything's going well, that's when he broke down in unrighteousness. He failed. If you know the story, he, he coveted another man's wife, and then he doesn't stop there. He moves on to sin more, just proceeds with being an unrighteous person, kills someone, tries to hide it. He's not the most righteous person in the Bible. And yet, how is he saying this in Psalm 34? How is he saying, you need to be righteous? That's demanded. It helps to see David's response after those sins. After he sinned, he wrote um, Psalm 51. And he says, when he repents, he prays to God in verse 14. He says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, 
and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Your righteousness, God's righteousness, is what he sings of. He's not praiseworthy. He's not praising his own righteousness. He is emphatically screaming for God's righteousness. And we know that we are in the same shoes. We cannot successfully take refuge in God. We cannot fear him right because of the ultimate hindrance that exists in our world, in, in us, sin. Because of that, we fail at that. We fail to take refuge in God, to see God rightly. And when we fail at that, what does God do? What do we need? We need a success case of righteousness. We need at least one, a perfect case of obedience. We need the one that actually can fulfill this judgment, this justice. We need justice. And that's what Jesus does. Today's passage, verse 22, the psalmist is crying out at the end, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let me go back a bit and read from verse 19, 19 to 22. The psalmist says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Do you know what else, where else the Bible mentions this passage? John 19, 36. For these things took place. This is explaining Jesus' death on the cross. And John actually records, For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Quote, not one of his bones will be broken. Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He's the righteous person who fulfills God's demand of such righteousness by his perfect obedience and his walk in such refuge in him, accurate fear of the Lord, dependence on him. He was the righteous one. And then that person, that specific historical person, he takes our place. He takes the place of the judgment of our sins. According to God's righteousness, it was only right for us to receive all the punishment. Even Psalm 34 is pretty loud about that. It says, we're actually not the righteous people here. We're the wicked. And it's pretty bad news for the wicked when we're reading Psalm 34, verse 16. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And he says, we're supposed to be wiped off of the memory from the earth because that's justice. And verse 21 reminds us that we were supposed to be condemned, but our holy, perfect, and righteous older brother, who did not sin, who walked the walk that it was supposed to be walked after God's own image, who did not participate in any guilt of the sin, Jesus comes to that court where we're being judged, and he says, can I take that place? Can I take that burden? Can I take that away from you? I'll take it. Jesus is the one that brings us true refuge from the ultimate suffering and danger, sin and death. And in Jesus, we can be safe. 
in Jesus, we can take safe haven. That we can now accurately see God and fear God because none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned in Christ, specifically in his righteousness. That's Philippians 3, 8-9. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And 2 Corinthians 5 reminds us that we become the righteousness of God through Christ. 1 Peter 2 reminds us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we will be healed. In Christ, we're healed. In Christ, we're safe. Through Jesus' righteousness, now we could die to sin and become righteous we're now enabled to accurately worship God, to fix our eyes upon the Lord through Jesus Christ. He's our loving and powerful, good friend who comes to us, follow me now, hold on to me tight. So allow me to invite all of you who's listening to this to put your trust in Jesus, to take refuge in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It enables us. It provides us protection. He loves us. So as I conclude, uh, Psalm 34 gives us that good scope of what a life of worship looks like. We live a life of worshiping God by taking refuge in Him, fearing Him, and pursuing His righteousness. Those are th things that are enabled by the righteousness of Christ. And only through Christ we are able to do those things. So let's take it practical. What are some things that could happen today for you guys, for me? How can we worship God through taking refuge in Christ? I think first, we need to recognize that there is a problem. Because many times we do forget that we, we are in need of Savior. Many times that we forget that there are adversities in life that needs to be taken care of. And then we try to brush it off with other things as we kind of passively try to take refuge in those things, but as we recognize more intentionally of those existences, of those eternal turmoils, then we could move forward and say we need an eternal solution. And then we could grasp Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we could rightly fear the Lord. Not terrified and just concerned, but in awe, in reverence, seeing the Lord, good and just God, that is our Father who adopts us in Christ. Recognize that this person is communicating to us today. And what can we do to do that today? We should continue to communicate. Hear his voice. Hear his voice through the word that he provided. And through the spirit that he provided within us to reside in us, we could hear it. We could hear his voice. We could pray to him. We could have conversations like that truly with the person of God. And let us continue to worship God. Practically, can we share that same thing that David tried to do in finding refuge in him? When he saw issues, 
And when he sees God's goodness in it, what does he do? He breaks out in praise and he shares that with other people. Let's do that. That's why I think it'll be uh, wise for us to join our uh, fellowship after uh, the worship. Join us in Zoom and share God's goodness. Let's commune with each other as saints and share such goodness and be glad for one another and be glad to God. Praise Him. That's why it would be good for you to continue thinking about how to worship God as a family, as individuals, as you could devote in the morning, at night. How could you continue this worship? How could you continue this life of worship to continue tasting it, tasting God? And as we wrap up our series on some, I pray and hope that you are reminded of this one thing, worshiping Jesus. Let our worship of Jesus be what takes the main focus during this time of hardship and turmoil. Not ignoring the existence of adversities, but facing head on with the power, with the peace, and with the strength that Christ provides. Let's cling on to Jesus. And I hope that we pray every day, give us this day our daily bread, and have the prayer answered. And praise God, He answers those things. And at least let's seek direct guidance to Him as His wisdom and His provision continues to come at us. And most importantly, let's find peace. Let's find contentment in such time of turmoil. Not because those are absent. Because here, David reminded us, Afflictions will fill up our lives. Righteous people will be followed by lots of afflictions, but that's okay because we have the peace in an eternal sense. There's a thing that actually engrasps us powerfully, which is our salvation in Christ. So let's hold on to that and let's live a life of worship. Let's pray. Spend a, a second or two reflecting in our, in our prayer and meditating on uh, the heart of worship and how we lack our ability to rightly worship God, but Jesus enables us to take refuge in Him and fear the Lord, revere the Lord, love the Lord, and put Him as our main center of the focus. Let's pray in thanksgiving and let's specifically demand for his guidance through all of this, that he will provide us wisdom and practical guidance to cling on to him and to share such peace, such experience such contentment in Christ. Let's pray. God, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your righteousness. And we confess in our full recognition of our limitations, Lord, we cannot take refuge in you. We cannot fear you right because we are unrighteous, but we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the imputation of righteousness to us through faith. We praise you for loving us that way. And we ask that that will live on in our lives that you would continue to be glorified through our walk with you. Let us cling on to Jesus. Let us now be in peace with you and with others. Be content with your goodness that you continue to provide every moment. Remind us every day of your love. 
through the meditation of your word, through prayer, and through worshiping with others. Let the words of Psalms dictate our words and praise, and would you be lifted up in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.